1: The pair of emerald green platform heels are pure disco. They look comically impractical for the task of law enforcement. But in the 1970s, they helped an undercover agent blend into Detroit's nightlife and bust a cocaine ring. They can now be found in one of the Capitol's odder museums, the Drug Enforcement Administration Museum in Arlington, Virginia. The Drug Enforcement Administration, or DEA, was founded in 1973, as America was beginning its war on drugs. Back then, it had 1,500 agents. Over the next 50 years, their number expanded by a factor of five. Now, enforcement is more sophisticated than officers sneaking into nightclubs in platform heels, but the drugs and the geopolitics they're caught up in are much more powerful too. I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can America stop fentanyl trafficking? American authorities confiscated a record amount of illegal fentanyl along the southwest border in 2022. But even so, when the numbers are eventually tallied, 2022 will likely see the highest number of fatal overdoses in America's 20-year opioid epidemic. Much of the fentanyl in America comes from China, through Mexico, and then across the southern border. Can that supply chain be interrupted? And how do America's relationships with the governments of China and Mexico affect the flow of drugs into the US? With me to do that are Idris Kalun in Washington and Erin Braun, who's written a lot about fentanyl and opioids and is based in Los Angeles. Idris, how are you doing? What's up in D.C.? Uh, I am
2: well. It is uh, light and sunny here, unlike in Los Angeles, where it is still dark. Um, So thanks to Aaron for making this work. (laughs) Aaron, you look caffeinated
1: and ready to go. How are things in L.A.?
3: You guys just energize me. You can't help it. Um, Things in L.A. are good. It has finally stopped raining here after about four months of incessant storms. So while it is very dark, it is at least warm.
1: You and I have talked about this. Is the mega drought now over?
3: I think California's short-term drought is probably over. But now what everybody's worried about is what people are calling the big melt, which is all of that snowpack that we've accumulated over the winter now melting too fast and flooding farms. So never a dull moment in California.
1: Okay, let's talk fentanyl, which is something you've been doing a lot of reporting on. And Idris and I are going to sort of hand you the keys to this episode in some senses. We did an episode, part one, on America's 20-year opioid epidemic, looking at the demand side. Our colleague Stevie spent some time in Oregon looking at decriminalisation there and how badly it's gone. You can scroll back in your feed and look for that. And this week, we're going to be looking at the supply side. And that really means really looking at how fentanyl gets into America and whether it's possible to reduce the supply of the drug. Erin, where are we going to start?
3: Well, I think, um, and Stevie's reporting showed this, there has been this great shift in America towards focusing on treatment and the demand side of things. But I think through my reporting, I realized that it's really important to keep looking at supply for a couple of reasons. And... The biggest one is that America's opioid epidemic, its twists and turns of the last 20 years have really been driven by the supply side of things. And we have seen that in the way that pharmaceutical companies blanketed the country in pills and then the way that traffickers introduced black tar heroin to the system and then the way that they introduced fentanyl a few years later, you know when fentanyl first came on the scene, people weren't clamoring for it. It was introduced to the drug supply and then people got addicted. So that's why I think it's really important to look at supply. And I'm really happy that we're doing this episode.
1: And there are a couple of ways that fentanyl gets into America, right? One is that it gets mixed with other drugs and then trafficked across the border. And you spent some time on the southern border looking at how that works.
3: So I'm at the far south end of San Diego County. And so behind me are these amazing, humongous, luxurious looking beach houses and streets lined with palm trees. And you can probably hear, it's, it's pretty loud, it's the Pacific Ocean. The ahead of me, a couple of miles south, you can see Tijuana and the neighborhoods on the hills and helicopters are circling constantly, but I'm gonna get a little closer and and see what else I can make out. The US-Mexico border is nearly 2,000 miles long, or just over 3,000 kilometers. It's the 10th largest land border in the world. It snakes across desert, farmland, and the Rio Grande, where it meets cities, the border feels more militarized. There's a a helicopter flag right over me right now. It's just circling overhead. I can't make out who it belongs to. Dead south right in front of me is the border maybe about a mile or two in the distance. And you can see the wall from here. I can maybe even make out an American flag. It's so peaceful here that it's, it's misleading almost because you know the intensity of the, the rhetoric about fentanyl. The busiest land port of entry on America's southern border and in the Western Hemisphere, is San Ysidro in San Diego County, California. People and goods constantly crisscross the border. But more nefarious things cross, too. More than half of all of the fentanyl seized by Customs and Border Patrol agents since 2020 was taken near San Diego. The area isn't new to drug smuggling. For decades, cannabis, and then cocaine, heroin, and meth have trundled through San Isidro. But fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin. Its strength means that it's compact and harder to find than other drugs. When agents do seize the stuff, it looks like a white powder, or it's been pressed into pills.
4: Well, at 30,000-foot level, you know, I'm the mayor of the largest border city in the United States.
3: And that Todd brings, Gloria is San Diego's uh, mayor and a longtime public official in Southern California. He's seen the benefits and the challenges that living on the border can bring.
4: It provides economic opportunity, cultural offerings that make us really unique and gives us a competitive edge in a 21st century economy, but does have some challenges. And what I know for this particular issue or what has been told to me by law enforcement is that a great deal of this product of all kinds, but fentanyl specifically in this conversation, Uh, does transit through our southern border.
3: Local officials, police, and prosecutors in San Diego are really worried about the health and safety of their own citizens. It's the eighth largest city in America, and overdose deaths increased quickly there as fentanyl proliferated. But officials are also worried about what happens when drugs leave their jurisdiction. For drug traffickers, San Diego is a gateway to the rest of the country.
4: So from my perspective, I thought, well, gosh, I'm ground zero, and in many ways we are, and we obviously we have um, experiences because a lot of this product moves through here, and some of it will surely take Exit 25 off the 5 and, and you know, end up in neighborhoods and harming kids in my, my city. Mm-hmm. But it's more true that they want to get up to distribution networks in Los Angeles and in Riverside County and get the hell out of San Diego County.
3: President Joe Biden is planning to hire about 1,000 new Border Patrol agents and customs workers, The administration also wants to splash out $300 million on new scanning technology at ports of entry. But the border isn't just a line. It's a region. And border security means more than just guarding a fence. The
5: basic lesson of border management in a global age is that no one country can control what happens. And if you wait for everything to arrive at the borderline, you're you're destined to be overwhelmed by it, whether it's migrants or drugs.
3: Alan Burson has worked on border issues for decades. He was Commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection under Barack Obama and was the Department of Homeland Security's top diplomat.
5: We've really taken a lot of steps toward looking at borders, not in terms of borderlines and ports of entry at the borderlines, but rather to recognize that what happens at the border At the border boundaries is really a function of a lot of other things that are going on, and you're much better advised to deal with the causes and effects away from the borderline.
3: In San Diego, there's an alphabet soup of agencies trying to stem the flow of fentanyl into the country. There's San Diego PD, DEA, FBI, CBP, DOJ, and they do stop a lot of drugs, but so much still makes it through. To a lot of border wonks, the fentanyl debate seems eerily familiar. It's just the latest battle in the long and unsuccessful war on drugs. So the big question becomes, what can America do differently this time?
1: Idris, before we try and evaluate the efforts to stop fentanyl coming into America, can you explain a little bit how the supply chain for this particular drug works and how it differs to other drugs that the DA has been tasked with preventing from coming into America before? Yeah, the
2: vast majority of fentanyl that's used in the country today comes across the southern border with Mexico. A lot of it is trafficked not by illegal immigrants, but by uh, American citizens. One study suggested that 86% of people who were arrested for trafficking fentanyl were, in fact, American citizens. But what they are bringing is uh, fentanyl that's produced in labs controlled by one of two cartels, uh, principally. That material, largely the precursors come from China, which has pretty loose rules governing the uh, distribution of these chemicals and even these brand new scanners that have been put into place you know they're capturing more of the drug but it's always unclear what percentage is going through completely unscathed and probably it's a lot uh, and only a fraction is being correctly apprehended at the border.
1: And the problem with the prohibition on fentanyl or making that prohibition work Aaron is that the drug is so powerful that even in tiny quantities, you can do a huge amount of damage, right? This is what makes this drug so different to to others.
3: Yeah, I think that as we saw fentanyl overdose deaths proliferate over the last few years, um, I mean, the reason for that is twofold. One, because like you say, the drug is so powerful, but also because a lot of users don't know what they're getting. When fentanyl was first introduced into America's drug supply, it was mixed with All kinds of different substances. And so somebody who thinks that they are taking heroin or cocaine or something else and has no idea that fentanyl is in their drugs isn't going to know how much to take or how much to dose. And now, of course, people are addicted to fentanyl itself
2: a lot of this drive has been just the cost of the product so initially people got addicted to oxycontin once they got addicted and could no longer get it through illicit means they turned to getting it illegally but still the real pill and at that point the pill cost i believe the street price was a dollar milligram so you know it was it was expensive Once OxyContin got reformulated to be harder to abuse, harder to crush, and immediately snort all of it, people converted to heroin, which was, I think, five to ten times cheaper, just in, in terms of what it would take to get you high. Fentanyl is even cheaper than that because it doesn't require any agriculture to produce, and it's a tiny portion that is needed, actually.
1: Aaron, do you see what's happened in America's opioid crisis in the supply side? So this movement from OxyContin to various kinds of heroin and then on to fentanyl. Do you see that as a failure of prohibition? Because, I mean, there's an argument that had America sort of done the big thing, which was never politically possible, right, of legalising heroin, then you wouldn't have lots of people dying of fentanyl overdoses now Or do you see the overdose numbers as just evidence that the prohibition hasn't been done properly, that that effectively with more policing, more scanners, more DEA agents, this supply can be choked off?
3: This is kind of the central question that I have been asking myself for a couple of weeks now. There's so much room for improvement on the supply side of things nobody I talked to was saying, you know, America and Mexico and China are working at their highest level of efficiency, they're cooperating just as much as they should be, like things are great. And so there's room for improvement, both within America, when you think about like domestic policing and and how agencies cooperate with each other. But also, I think, with cooperation abroad.
2: To your point about whether prohibition is the problem, I think, you know, it's worth remembering that this all began because of an illicit drug, right, that was approved by federal regulators that was distributed in ostensibly legal ways that caused this, this epidemic to begin with. So I don't think that if opioids were just available over the counter,
1: that we wouldn't be experiencing a, a massive addiction like we do today. Yeah, Idris, I think you're surely right about that. The difference maybe is that you would have fewer people dying of overdoses, right? So maybe that's the, the trade as opposed to an opioid epidemic versus no opioid epidemic.
3: I would just add also that I know we're talking about fentanyl today, but if we kind of broaden the lens for a minute, this is really about the proliferation of synthetic drugs versus things that you would grow like cannabis or poppy and how those synthetic drugs are going to change the landscape. And it's not just fentanyl, it's meth and it will be other things going forward.
1: Yeah, I think if you're looking for one big bang solution to the opioid epidemic, you're going to be disappointed. But the numbers are so large that any small incremental or marginal improvement can actually make a pretty big difference in terms of number of addicts and number of overdoses. So we're going to look next at what Mexico is doing or failing to do to control the supply of fentanyl into America. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you took out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. You can find the best offer for that at economist.com slash US pod. Erin and Idris, what have you particularly enjoyed from our past week's coverage?
3: Daniel Knowles, who is our Midwest correspondent, wrote a little jolly box about Malort, which is Chicago's beverage of choice, and so very close to my heart as a Chicagoan. I loved seeing Malort in print. It reminded me of the taste, which to me is kind of something like old tires.
2: I thought our leader bonking uh, Emmanuel Macron for going to China and uh, running his mouth a bit uh, was was quite good. Uh, we've normally been quite favorable to him. But uh, I think it is important to point out when he steps in it. And he really stepped in it this week.
1: Yeah, he really did. Uh, Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes of this episode. Erin, one of the things that we're hearing a lot from Republicans at the moment is that Mexico isn't doing its bit to stop fentanyl crossing the southern border. And there's some pretty outlandish suggestions among some Republicans about what ought to be done about this. You've been looking at that question too. Is Mexico doing everything it can? Are there things that could be done that are not being done that would reduce the supply of fentanyl into the U.S.?
3: Yeah, I've been chatting recently to a lot of people to work out how much of that is bluster and how much is fair. Arturo Sarukhan was the Mexican ambassador to the U.S. from 2007 to 2013, and he told me that the idea of shared responsibility for drug trafficking has withered under the administration of President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO as we call him.
0: Obviously, President López Obrador's mantra of hugs, not bullets, which I would probably describe more aptly as hugs for thugs, has not helped because what we've basically now seen resurgent in Mexico is the predicate of a Pax Narca. If we don't bother you, you don't bother us, and, you know, let bygones be bygones, which is basically what has happened these past four years with the López administration. Mm. And so... If you look at, even though last year, by the end of last year, we saw a slight decrease in the number of violent homicides in Mexico, this administration will probably end with the highest numbers of violent homicides since Calderón declared the war against organized crime. Higher numbers than the Calderón administration, higher numbers than the Peña Nieto administration. And so something is not working in the president's public security paradigm.
3: The relationship between the United States and Mexico is complicated. And really multifaceted. Security is just one piece of the puzzle. But trust really has eroded during AMLO's presidency. In 2020, the United States arrested Mexico's former defense minister in Los Angeles on drug charges, which he then denied. Mexico was furious. So mad, in fact, that America dropped the charges and the former general went home. But Mexico wasn't placated. Soon afterwards, it passed a new national security law directing U.S. agents based in Mexico to share all of their intelligence with their Mexican counterparts. The DEA says this led to a lot of bureaucratic delay and really hampered their work. But even Saru one of AMLO's biggest critics, doesn't lay the fentanyl problem all, or even mostly, at his feet. He says that the U.S. needs to be doing more, too.
0: We're heading back very quickly to where we were in the 1980s of the mutual finger-pointing and recrimination. Mm-hmm. It serves no one that we go back to that point. Transnational problems require transnational solutions. The only way you're going to move the needle at the end of the day is if the U.S. significantly impacts consumption, rehabilitation policies, treatment policies in the U.S., if the U.S. significantly curtails guns going into Mexico, that's the US's responsibility, and Mexico's responsibility, which is how does Mexico truly strengthen the rule of law, institutional resilience, confronting structural impunity, endemic impunity, and moves away from, a pa- from this paradigm of hugs for thugs, I'm not saying that you're going to magically overnight improve every one of these issues either on the US side or on the Mexican side. But unless you start moving the needle on these issues, we're going to continue to play whack-a-mole and today it's fentanyl and tomorrow it's going to be a new substance that is being devised, concocted, um, which will become the substance.
3: This idea of a grand bargain of we'll tamp down on the smuggling of drugs if you tamp down on the smuggling of guns is something that you hear a lot from current Mexican diplomats, too. Carlos Gonzalez Gutierrez is the Mexican Consul General in San Diego. When I asked him about this, he said the U.S. is the one that needs to be stepping up in a number of ways.
6: We want to receive what we have received from the U.S. in the past. Equipment and training, joint operations. We want to participate in international meetings to make common diagnostics about the problem. But the most important thing is just as the US expects us to stop the exports of drugs into the United States, we ask the US to do more in order to stop the southern flow of guns into Mexico.
3: So he is Mexico's top diplomat in San Diego and no stranger to America's war on drugs. But he's also a representative of AMLO's administration, and they're on a mission to get Americans to see what the fentanyl crisis looks like from Mexico's point of view, and just to see how cyclical all of this is.
6: I have been 36 years a member of the Foreign Service, and all my career has been here in the U.S., and I know that the more integrated we are as economies the more blurred the border between domestic and international affairs is in the relationship between the united states and mexico yes the the more temptation there is to use uh, the neighbor as the propitiatory victim in the case of immigrants or as the evil network of cartels and drug traffickers in the case of the fentanyl. If you go to Mexico, you will talk to people in the street, and they will. the first thing they will tell you, why we never hear about who's distributing the drugs north of the border? Mm-hmm. Why we never talk about cartels in the United States? Why is always the Mexican on the bad side and the American in the good side?
1: So Idris, when you're sitting in America and talking about the supply of drugs into the country, it feels very much like something that Mexico does to the US, right? But the ambassador made the good point that this is a two-way flow. You know, America is arming the cartels, albeit not deliberately, but there's there's a flow of weapons. And of course, the enormous market for illegal drugs in America causes instability south of its border but can we talk a little bit about how all this plays in American domestic politics because one of the things you and I've been talking about for a little bit is how particularly on the Republican side some of the proposals for what to do about the supply of fentanyl into the U.S. are getting pretty unhinged and it's possible to imagine that becoming a litmus test in the Republican primary you know how how kind of crazy do you want to be in the solutions you propose here?
2: Yeah. So we we all remember Donald Trump became president by promising to build a wall that would keep not only illegal immigration out, but also drugs out. And now the Republican field has moved on from that to the debate about one, whether or not to designate the cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. Fine. But Two, whether or not uh, the military would be justified in taking action against them with or without the consent of the Mexican government. AMLO has encouraged all Mexican citizens in America to not vote for Republicans, partially because of this rhetoric, which will do nothing to tamp down this debate.
1: Aaron, I see these proposals you're seeing on the Republican side to essentially invade Mexico, use the U.S. Army against Mexican cartels, as in some sense a sign of desperation, right? Or maybe a better way to put it is that the search for policies to reduce the supply of fentanyl into America has just kind of come up dry. And so the populist thing is to propose a kind of huge thing, which sounds tough and sounds like it would be effective, even if in practical terms, it's actually impossible and illegal.
3: I think that that is right. I also think it fits very well into what we've seen Republicans doing, as Idris mentioned, with the wall in 2016 and then kind of fear-mongering over a migrant caravan in 2020. But, I mean, even before that, we saw Nixon's war on drugs in the 1970s and Ronald Reagan bringing up the drug war before the midterms in 86. So this is a a well-worn political tactic. And I think, yes, it's born out of desperation because we don't want to see this level of death continue. but It's also very much a way, I think, to put pressure on the Biden administration and try to make Joe Biden look weak in the run up to the Republican primary and the presidential election in 2024.
1: And is there any truth, do you think, to the idea that AMLO is somehow directly responsible or indirectly responsible for the increase in the supply of fentanyl into America? Or is it just a case that he happens to be president of Mexico at a time when this has happened?
3: I mean, I think AMLO has a very different posture on this compared to his predecessors. And you see that reflected in what he's done on security in the last few years. So before AMLO came into office, there was this thing called the Merida Initiative, which outlined security cooperation between the U.S. and Mexico for years. And that was aid and training and attempted to foster this really close cooperation on drugs trafficking between the two countries. And AMLO ripped that up. And he, he put something in its place called the Bicentennial Framework that focused on a lot of the same things that the Merida Initiative did, but it was much more geared towards providing economic opportunities for Mexicans so they did not get into the drug trade rather than focusing on the enforcement side of things, which is not inherently bad. But I think that's why you see people like Ambassador Sarukan say that he is focusing on hugs for thugs and not actually cracking down on the problem.
2: It's very difficult now, right? The fact that these drugs are now not agricultural means that, you know, attempting to rain down pesticides or burn down fields just doesn't work. It's a lot more decentralized now. It's a lot easier to hide a fentanyl production facility, you know, in a remote part of Mexico in a way that's hard to detect, unlike a cannabis farm, unlike a, you know, a coca plant farm. All of those things mean that even even if America were to take the step of, of sending its troops to Mexico, which would obviously, I think, be a, a catastrophic error, I don't think it, even that would fix the problem of supply whack-a-mole that uh, America currently has.
3: It's also important to remember that Mexico has its own presidential election in 2024 too. Yes, we're seeing this increasing rhetoric on the Republican side of things, but a lot of Mexican security experts and diplomats told me that the same thing could happen in Mexico's presidential election. America is not unique in using its neighbor as a political punching bag.
1: Okay, let's leave Mexico there for now. As we mentioned earlier, the supply route for fentanyl involves precursor chemicals from China, generally, which then arrive in Mexico where the drug is made and then it gets from there either across the border or via the mail into the US. So we'll be back in a moment to look at the very start of the supply chain in China. Many of the precursor chemicals that are eventually made into fentanyl are made in China. So preventing their manufacture is another way of stopping fentanyl. That's something that lawmakers in Washington are looking at more and more.
3: Yeah, and one of the loudest voices on the Hill when it comes to opioids is Congressman David Trone of Maryland. He's co-chairman of a bipartisan commission on fentanyl that issued a report in 2022 And when we spoke last month, I started by asking him if there's enough political attention on the opioid epidemic among his colleagues.
5: The opioid epidemic and the death toll, which is just uh, outrageous. I mean, we lost over a million folks now to overdoses. And um, I lost my nephew to fentanyl. He died in 2016 of an overdose. And when I speak to groups, almost no one has not lost someone. Uh, So yes, it's getting a lot of attention. But no, we are not getting the job done. We are not making progress. The death toll is continuing unabated. And it goes back to how the supply gets here. And um, looking at China, the precursors, looking at Mexico, the two major cartels. I was co-chairman with Senator Tom Cotton of the Commission on Fentanyl Demand uh, coming across, and we concurred unanimously. We frankly can't stop the supply, so we've got to focus on demand reduction.
3: Can you? Walk me through how we got from China, you know, mailing fentanyl via packages into the U.S. to it being largely supplied by the cartels through the the southern border.
5: Yeah, the big issue was at one point China mailing the packages through the international mail facilities and the Senate went over in 19, met with the Chinese officials And at that point, China and us have a little bit better relationship. It's a terrible relationship right now. But they cracked down in 19 after that. They had a number of folks were arrested. There was some very serious sentencing. And that chilled the whole coming over by mail. And so it's all moved to the border, all moved to precursors. They've got a huge chemical industry, biggest in the world. India is right behind them. And they've got a whole bunch of middlemen that we've identified that are then taking the fentanyl, diverting it, sending to the ports uh, in in Mexico, where it's picked up and controlled by the the two major cartels.
3: And it was after Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan that you started to see relations kind of disintegrating?
5: They were disintegrating well before that. That was like the icing on the cake. But with the Olympics and all the sanctions from President Trump, that really put relationships in a bad way. I've met with Chinese ambassador, Quinn Gang who was a U.S. ambassador, we met you know, right in his office, the, at his home, and he it's crystal clear, you know, we're not doing it. Extremely unhelpful, and simply wanted to blame America for our addiction and say, we have to solve our addiction problem, and, you know, we're the issue. And we do have to solve our, our addiction issue. But they're bringing the precursors over. It's, everyone knows it, it's crystal clear, but they've refused to cooperate. We've been aggressively pursuing them, including having direct talks with Beijing, which I had myself, with all of their top drug folks. And it was the same rhetoric, uh, the same bellicose response. It's not us, it's you.
3: Did you come out of those meetings with Chinese officials thinking that there was any room for cooperation?
5: We talked about how we can have a a win-win situation. And Chinese government is most likely not profiting from this it's being done by you know the racketeers and the transnational drug organizations that work with the Mexican cartels. So it's something that would be a big win for us. And it would give them a chit in the game that we could do something to help them. It seems logical to me that they would want to figure out a way to help us. I mean, who wants to see 100,000 folks you know die every year? But
3: in the report, you guys also mentioned that even if China did crack down on precursors, Probably they would just come from somewhere else. Do you know where, what other countries are in that business?
5: So likely they just moved to India. it's a huge chemical industry also, and then we'd work on that one, then they'd move somewhere else. So these precursors are fairly common, and it's easily made into fentanyl once it's brought to the U.S. The beauty of fentanyl from a criminal standpoint is you can take a small area, produce it very simply, in the middle of nowhere, and you're not relying upon agriculture. So heroin, it's poppy grown. We can measure how many poppies they've grown, how many hectares, acres. But with fentanyl, we don't have any way to measure it. And of course, way cheaper, way more potent. It's, it's the right drug.
3: Are there any enforcement policies that you think it's worthwhile pursuing, either at the border or within Mexico, or do you think because, you know, you cut off one route, another one will come in its place. It's a little bit fruitless.
5: You know, we want to continue to do what we can to support DEA and Customs Water Patrol and the Coast Guard who's involved in this. And uh, we need to continue to do those things. But we're not going to interdict our way out of this crisis. I just came from a uh, Homeland Security briefing in the SCIF. It's simple. I mean, they're talking about how many hundreds of millions of pills they've interdicted. But they're also crystal clear. Crystal clear, everybody, from the you know Homeland Security groups, the Customs Border Patrol, that we are not going to stop the supply. And I mean, literally, that question I asked less than thirty minutes ago, and everybody in uniform was crystal clear: we're not stopping the supply, and we don't have the cooperation of China. We do not have the cooperation of Mexico. We have no reason to expect that anytime soon. hundred thousand are dead a year. We got to work on demand.
1: so Idris, the unanimous conclusion of a bipartisan committee involving members of the House and the Senate into the supply of fentanyl into the US is that it's kind of unstoppable, right? The DEA and others are like Sisyphus rolling his rock up the hill. I mean, that's pretty gloomy.
2: It is pretty gloomy, although it's it's good to be realistic about this problem as opposed to throwing billions of dollars at it and, and ultimately not succeeding. I think the point that, you know, if China were to cooperate, which is not going to happen anytime soon, because I don't see tensions ratcheting down anytime soon, that it would just appear from somewhere else, I think is fairly powerful. The problem is that there is such a mass of addicted people in America, and it's so profitable to provide these cheap synthetic drugs to them that it's kind of impossible to imagine how how supply alone will will stop anything.
1: And Erin, as with Mexico, where, as Idris mentioned earlier, you have some Republicans talking about sending in the army or sending in the National Guard, there's some pretty spicy rhetoric, largely on the Republican side, about what China's up to when it comes to these precursor chemicals for making fentanyl, right? And suggestions that America's being deliberately poisoned, which is something which we don't have evidence.
3: Yeah, I think you're right, just as we've seen kind of the rhetoric get inflamed on the Mexico side of things. It's the same with China and, and even on the fringes you're hearing talk about how this is akin to an opium war and an intentional poisoning of American citizens and I think that that is taking things a little far, but I do think it's fair to say that China has used its role as a kind of tough on drugs cop for geopolitical Gain And you saw this when it in 2018 and 2019 did control fentanyl and some of its precursors while Donald Trump was in office. And then we saw direct shipments from China to the U.S. stop. It had similarly good cooperation with Australia and tackling its meth problem. But when those countries didn't want to cooperate in other ways, as we've seen America's relations with China sour, that kind of removed the incentive for China to want to help in any way.
2: You mentioned the opium Wars and I think the idea of this as a reverse opium war can be a bit overwrought, but I do think that the sense that these wars that the British and then the French fought basically to force the the Chinese to legalize opium and and to sell it globally, which set off in the Chinese psyche a century of humiliation until Mao took took power like that is still very powerful and that's why counter narcotics is seen as subordinate to, this great power competition that that they have, but China has its own opioid issues, which I think are understudied because the government is not particularly interested in in a deep analysis of it. So I don't think that uh, ultimately this uh, you know this just stops in in America and, and you know Canada has a big problem at the moment. Scotland has opioid death rates that are approaching America. You know if China does think that it's a kind of useful lever to to pull, I think ultimately one that's not moral, but two, I, I don't think that it stays contained in one country for very long.
1: Okay, so thus far, I think we've done a decent job of explaining quite how hard this problem of the supply of fentanyl is to solve. But as both of you have said, it's not an option for the US government just to throw up its hands and say, this is really hard. So can you both give me some things that might help, at least on the margins? And as we said before, because the numbers are so big, marginal changes can have pretty pretty sizable and worthwhile effects
3: Yeah, I do think that there are things that can be done on the margins that will help reduce overdose deaths. And even without cooperation from Mexico and China, America could do things like legalizing fentanyl test strips within the country, which are illegal in so many states because it's technically drug paraphernalia. But that would help folks to at least understand what they're consuming, so much of the fentanyl that is sold to teens and adolescents is dealt on social media. So I think that there's work that could be done between government officials and social media to crack down on that.
2: This again is a marginal idea, but it is an important one, which is to increase the scope of naloxone distribution, which reverses the effects of opioid overdoses. America's come quite a long way in that, but it's still not ubiquitous. And then on the long run, you have a much better chance of, of achieving cessation in addiction if people are given medically assisted treatment in the form of methadone and buprenorphine. And the rates of access to that are still very low. That's something that America could accomplish, both by reforming its drug court system and and also getting some of the recalcitrant
1: states that haven't expanded Medicaid to do so. Okay, well, so those are some proposals to end on. That's great. Thank you, guys. The reason for doing this podcast, really, and the earlier one we did about the demand side of the opioid epidemic, is that this story is incredibly important. As you have mentioned, 100,000 overdoses or more every year, and yet there's a terrible sense of inevitability about it. And one of the things about how the news business works is that journalists and editors tend to prioritise things that are new over things that are important. And the opioid epidemic in America is really important because it's so large. And it's also quite hard to cover because it's familiar. So this has been our attempt to do that. I'm sure we'll come back to it again. Aaron, thanks for all your great reporting this week. Before I let you guys go, you know the drill. I've got a quiz for you. This one is not drug-themed because that didn't quite feel appropriate. So we're going to go back to American politics. President Biden's been in Ireland this week, as you guys will have noticed, getting in touch with his Irish roots. He's one of 23 presidents, so half of all presidents who have or who claim Irish ancestry. Question one, the states with the highest percentage of Irish Americans are all in New England. Can you name the top three? Has to be Massachusetts,
2: for one. It's definitely Massachusetts. What else is there? New, New Hampshire and Vermont. Think small.
3: Connecticut? Rhode Island?
1: <laughs> We're just naming New England. Maine. <laughs> Idris, I think you've got a couple of points there. So New Hampshire actually has the highest share with just over 20%, followed by Massachusetts, which is Idris's first one, and then Rhode Island in third place. When President Biden was in Ireland this week, he visited the place where his great-great-great-grandfather set sail for America in 1849. And he went to the pub with some probably rather distant cousins. Biden is famously proud of his Irish roots. And when he was Barack Obama's running mate, his Secret Service codename was Celtic. Oh,
3: that's nice. Nice. John, what do you think your Secret Service codename would be?
1: Well, Idris reckons that I resemble Mr. Peanut Butter from the show BoJack Horseman. So maybe peanut butter or Mr. Peanut Butter would be appropriate for me. Although
2: it'd have to be something like very British.
1: Mr. Crumpets. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Crumpets, I'd take.
3: Whatever your, what's your favorite type of tea?
1: English breakfast. English, there you go. That's it. (laughs) Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thanks, John. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now explore our whole archive, including our first episode on the opioid epidemic at economist.com slash checkspod. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com and we really like reading those emails, so please keep them coming. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance for you next week.